Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? This whole party. Down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Are you ready to get down with some D&D? I know I am, and I am joined, as I am always joined, by the maternal, mature, and mirthful, maybe merry, possibly monumental, and always melted, Mad Wizard Merwin. Less so with the melted these days, because it's actually cooling down up here, so... About time. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) I've definitely been melted over the last month or so, but I am back, I am fully formed, and I am ready to talk D&D. Awesome. We're going to talk a little bit about the uh, the mythic Ireland and Scotland of uh, D&D, the Moonshade Isles, today. Because you asked for it, and we'll talk about it some more in the future, but uh, we'll do our, our like introductory part one of it. Because there's way too much to cover in one episode, right, John? Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah. Uh, next week, we won't be talking about the Moonshade Isles. We'll be talking more about monster design again, because, you know, the Mad Wizard Menagerie Patreon is coming. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that in our announcements. Is that okay, Sean? Hey, I'd love to talk about it. So your alter ego is the Mad Wizard, correct? That's what they tell me. That's what they tell me. I'm not big on nicknames, but um, either you or someone uh, has made the Mad Wizard stick. So uh, that's what we're going with for this project. I'm pretty sure it was me. I've been calling you the Mad Wizard for like three years. Mm. Okay, so you're the brain. Yeah, it's my fault. I mean, it's it's the alliteration, right? Mad Wizard Merwin. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it just kind of goes. Yep. Uh, anyways, we've been running a project at Encoded Design. It's called the Character Cache, uh, and that's been our, one of our ongoing Patreons for, for like three years now. Three years of NPCs that you can use for your games. But that is ending this month, and in October, we are starting a new campaign called the Mad Wizards Menagerie. Sean, you're heading this up, right? I am. So what I will be doing is each month I will be creating a brand new, unique 5th edition D&D monster. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, we're still using the same artist that we used from the character cache, Matt Morrow. Um, these pieces will be more sketch art. Uh, if you've ever seen some of the Diablo sketch art and things like that, it'll look more in that vein. Um, I'm, I'm very excited about the, the, pieces, the piece I've already seen for our preview piece. It's very cool. Yeah, Matt is very good at his craft, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that each month we're going to produce um, a new creature complete with description, creature lore, a pencil sketch, and a full 5th edition stat block. And if I'm right, Sean, um, a lot of this creature lore and whatnot will be written from the point of view of the Mad Wizard. Yep. So hopefully what we'll be able to capture in this is not just giving you know, our, our patrons a monster that they can use, but also kind of entertaining in the voice of this Mad Wizard. Mm-hmm. Um, as the campaign grows, we're going to add more monsters per month, and then hopefully a short adventure layer each month, yep. written by uh, the Mister Merwin himself. Mm-hmm. And I've been just—I've been in the habit of doing this because I wrote for Cobalt Press's Creature Codex, wrote monsters for it, and then also did the layers for their um, Creature Codex layers. So I am kind of in the frame of mind and work mode to just be thinking in terms of monsters and layers. So I figured we would just continue that and see if people are interested. Yeah. And have some fun with it because 
you know, uh, doing things from the point of view of the Mad Wizard is always fun, right? It gives me a chance to step outside my normal writing zone. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have some other patron levels, too, where you'll be able to act and interact with uh, the Mad Wizard, Merwin, and uh, with the rest of the Encoded Designs team. Um, you want to ask the Mad Wizard about his life? Uh, he's pretty talkative at the moment. And, uh, you know, we want Encoded Designs to talk about monsters and adventure design with you folks, and we will do that. Yep. So we will have levels where you can join me for a chat uh, once a month or actually give input into whatever monsters we're working on or give an idea that we can act on to create a monster. Mm-hmm. And as the campaign moves along, I'm sure there will be other surprises. I've already had a few ideas for uh, friends, companions, associates of the Mad Wizard that might pop up with some of their own writings during mm-hmm. the campaign. There you go. If you'd like to get on this Patreon, you can slide on over to uh, patreon.com slash encoded designs and you'll see the Mad Wizard Merwin Patreon. I'll probably make a tiny URL that is more closer to like URL or something like that in the future that you can also go to. But I don't have that yet, but I will in the future. But right now, patreon.com backslash encoded designs. Amen. Oh, also, last thing. The last character for the character cache is the Mad Wizard Merwin. So if you want to see what the Mad Wizard Merwin looks like in 5th edition stats, Fate stats, and Savage World stats, and also get a little bit of the history and background of the Mad Wizard Merwin, you might want to go check that out. Just to be clear, it's not actually me. It's 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 a character. I I don't travel the planes and, and do mad things. Or do you? Or do I? Dun, dun, dun. Mm-hmm. All right, next thing. Congratulations to Bill, Benham, and Lisa Chen. So what are they? Uh, what's up with them, Sean? So what's up with them is in a span of two days, we learned that Bill Benham, who was the resource manager for the Adventurers League, was recently hired by Wizards of the Coast as an associate producer for D&D. So he will be stepping into the big show. He will be one of the people in charge of making sure D&D products get made. So we're all very excited. Bill has done a great job of acting as a resource manager for the Adventures League, as all of the adventures that have been released show. So it's great to see him get a chance to live the dream of working on D&D full-time at at Wizards. And on the flip side, Lisa Chen, who is one of the community managers for the Adventures League, was selected to be the full-time community manager for the DMs Guild. So she will be taking on that role, working directly for one bookshelf to make sure that all the people who contribute to the DMs Guild um, have their issues heard. And, uh, you know, she she will market that and make sure it gets up in front of the eyes of all the D&D players and DMs in the world. That's very exciting, right? Yeah. So that was two bits of good news from for some good folks. So congratulations to them. I'm not sure that I've ever met Bill, but uh, Lisa Chen was one of the guests at the Queen City Conquest this past year, and she's delightful. Mm-hmm. She's a wonderful human being. Yes. Enjoyable to talk to and, and all that good stuff. And, and Bill is all of those things as well. And he also likes pugs for some reason, but we don't hold that against him. Oh, that's funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about something a little bit more controversial, I suppose. So, yeah. Mike Mike Merle's on Twitter. Yeah. So, go ahead. Yeah, I think Mike is probably one of the best stewards that the game has had over these many, many years, along with Jeremy Crawford and Chris Perkins and Chris Lindsay and, and all of the crew at Wizards of the Coast working on D&D right now. So I follow Mike closely on Twitter because I love to see what he has to say, especially on, you know, directly on topics D&D related. 
and this past week he certainly got people's attention with a slightly controversial uh, series of tweets. So I will read them to you to, uh, to, to get things rolling here. His first tweet was, when designing a game, consider the personality traits and behaviors the game encourages in its players. Then ask yourself if you want to make a game for a community that embraces what you're encouraging. Which makes sense. You know, mm -hmm. create, create a game that you want your audience to enjoy and that will speak to them. Um, and so I thought, okay, that's, that's cool. That's a you know, good, good bit of advice. And then he followed up with, that tweet is a nicer way of saying, if you make a game for assholes, be ready, willing, and able to deal with assholes. Okay. That uh, that's a little bit of that's a little bit controversial right there, uh, and a then bit. and then he followed it up with it's also why D and D got out of the business of trying to quote unquote fix obnoxious people, and needless Man. to say, a tweet storm followed. Of course it did, right? Like how could that not? Yeah. So what was most amusing about this was it's it's one of those deals where you put up a kind of vague tweet and everyone puts their own fears and their own biases into it. So mm -hmm. you, you instantly got people saying, well, why are you picking on conservatives? Why are you picking on Republicans? Um, why are you picking on the new vampire, the masquerade game? Why you know, are you talking about violence in games? Are you talking about people who play Munchkin? You know, they, they were just like people just throwing out all of these can I say that those, like like Sean just said, those tweets are more about how you feel than about what Mike was saying. Right. But it does bring up a topic that I do want to talk about for just a, just a bit. Because there, there are two kind of contradictory um, cliches that you'll hear talked about in, in gaming. One of them is this thing that Mike is saying, which is, you know... You, when you create the game, you're creating a behavior in in your players by by the way you design the game, and that can be troublesome. But there's also this kind of opposing cliche which says, you know, if as long as you're having fun, you're playing the game right. And and sometimes I feel like these two ideals are contradictory, and maybe they're not, but. I have to think that if you are playing the game and having fun, you're not necessarily playing the game right. I, I agree with that statement. Right. A hundred percent. Yeah. That doesn't mean you're not having fun. That doesn't mean you're not playing a game. Right. That also doesn't mean that you're playing the game in the way that it was intended. Mm -hmm. And it also means that the way you're playing the game might be detrimental to the game itself. In the sense that you as a player, if you're especially if you're playing in public or playing with people who you aren't who you don't share an aesthetic with, um, you are kind of an ambassador for that game. Kind of. Right. And so if you know, if you play the game in a way where it makes other people not want to play the game, I think that goes to what Mike is saying here. Um, now, that said, I, I think D&D is a game that can be played by its design in many different ways. It's intended to be played in many different ways by its design. Yep. And I think some of those ways 
are not discouraged by the rules. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, they're, yeah, they're not because it's a modular game that can be played in such a variety of ways that it's not worried about how right. people are playing. It's just that can people get it to the table and play it the way that they want to. Yep. So I, I, I don't think... I don't think D&D got out of the business of uh, trying to fix obnoxious people. Um, I think that the way that the game is tending right now, based on its popularity and its main expressions and its main consumption, which tends to be through streams and people watching, people having fun playing, that you can see how a good way to play the game is to include everyone. But I still think there are pockets out there who play the game in a way that discourages other people from playing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about that. That's like, man, it's like a whole show worth of information right. in and of itself the i guess my um my initial and maybe my my basic premise for what you were saying is that people who judge games based on on how people other people are are playing those games and experiencing those games and presenting those games depending on the game itself is not an indication of what the game actually is mm-hmm. so it's a it's a thing where like we will have these personal experiences with a with a group of people in the game that's being played and not really understand because a lot of people don't think about what games are actually doing they're just thinking about the experience that they have mm-hmm. so they don't really judge the game on its own merits they just judge the game on the experience that they have and that's that's normal that's what people do right 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 that doesn't mean that that game is good or bad or whatever like i've played i've played games where i've had a really great time playing the game but I know that the, it wasn't because of the game. Right. I've also had games where I'm like, I had a really terrible time playing the game, but I'm like, oh, I love the game part of it. But mm-hmm. the experience that I had was terrible. Right. So, but I'm not looking at games like most people are because most people are just looking to have the good experience, right? Mm-hmm. Not looking at the mechanics and how things play. So it's completely understandable that people feel that way. And um, to, to the other point that you said, like when you're out playing in public, you're an ambassador for the game. Sort of, kind of, not really. Depends on the situation like if i'm just running a game at a game store and i'm not like you know part of adventures league or whatever and i'm just out there playing for fun with people at a table i don't really have a responsibility to anybody like no one's putting that on me like the the only responsibility i might have is to the game store for allowing me to play in that public space mm-hmm. but not to the game itself um i'm just having fun with my friends or whoever showed up to play that's that's how i feel about it like that is i mean that's not how I feel about it because I would take more of a responsibility for it. But in the grand scheme of things, that's probably more closer to the reality. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, I think I think my point is, if you care about the health of the hobby, you want to encourage people to to partake, mm-hmm. and so being aware of how you are coming across is part and parcel of that care for the hobby. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I agree that you have not signed any contract saying that I must act in a certain way because I'm playing this game. Yes, this is more of a personal um, agenda, I suppose, right? Like, mm-hmm. like if I'm out here doing this thing, do I feel personally responsible for, for taking care of the, the hobby and the game as a whole? Right. And I do, and I know you do, but not everybody feels that way, right? Right. And I'm not, I'm not going to blame those people for not feeling that way because it's their choice. Like, I prefer that they didn't do that, right. but I'm not going to say anybody should be doing a thing. Okay, let me, let me flip this around for, for a real-world example. Um, because of the changes to the Adventures League rules, there have been reports that people are actively recruiting players to play in Adventures League games, especially new players, and then re- making the game as miserable as possible. To- well, those people are those people are jerks, right? Yeah. I mean i I don't think that's good, but and I don't I, I actually actually that's. That's something different, though. Like, that's actively harming somebody. Right. But right, that is... But so, so, it's, so it's the intention that matters. If you run a terrible game, but you don't mean to run a terrible game, then... then well, it's, what do you define as terrible, right? Uh, well, it, it, depends on, it depends on where you are. I mean, run a game where you... you Say you're a DM and you do things act you, you do things that lessen the fun for the players. Um, I mean if you're if you're intending on harming, then that's that's a terrible move. Like you're just a bad person. Mm-hmm. Um because really the the idea is like you just don't have to play those games. Go play something else. Mm-hmm. Don't harm everybody else in the process. That's 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 terrible. Yeah. Now, that's different from what you stated before, though. That's like being an ambassador for the game, right? That's what we were talking about. Like, right. I, I'm saying like you don't have to necessarily go out and try to be an ambassador for the game because really the, the purpose of playing games is to have a good time. Right. So I don't need to go out in public and be like, I love me some d and I'm going to promote D&D. Really, I'm just going out there and be like, I want a group of people to play with and have a good time with. Right. That's what I'm saying. Hopefully along the way, you'll be promoting the game. The other situation that you're talking about is people being assholes. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, I just broke our rule on Down with D&D by being explicit. Well, um, actually, Mike was explicit, so we've been yeah, saying that. Yeah, so like, that is... um. That is you just being a jerk out there. like, And also, that is... You're playing an Adventurers League game in public, which has a certain connotation to it, right? You're not just playing D&D out in public, not using a specific set of rules. And you're also, like, reflecting poorly upon that store. Like, you were in that store making them look bad. Mm-hmm. So, that's that's a that's a douchebag move in a number of ways. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't do that. Right. I mean... And if I was the store owner, I would make you never. I would not allow you in my store anymore. Right, and and a, and a lot of it, as you said, is also in the eye of the beholder, as it were, um, of what bad behavior is. Um, so a you know a group of people could get together to play in a store and behave in a way that for them is normal, mm-hmm. cursing, you know, however you want to describe bad behavior um, that someone else sitting at the next table over might not like but for others you know it, it could be completely fine so it's it, it's it's a touchy subject um, which was why I thought it was funny that Mike even brought it up on Twitter uh, but 
just something, I don't know, something I thought was interesting. It's interesting that you say that because, um, like, swearing and things like that at the table, uh, that has nothing to do with how your game is designed, right? True. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, yeah. That's that's actually what I thought we were talking about was um, not play culture. Um, I thought we were talking about design influencing behavior. It, it, and, and it is. It, it is that as well. And so I think we could talk strictly about that because, you know, somebody might say the just the idea of magic items um, – is rough because only one person can have it. So you you are introducing this tension into the game about uh, dividing treasure that could mm-hmm. that could lead to poor behavior. It could absolutely. Um, and they, they I think they actually solved that with the new the new rules. Like is there there isn't any of that anymore really? Well, in, in the Adventures League, right? But but just yeah. to, just in a home game, you could even have tension. Sure, absolutely. Way. So um, you know, it is it is interesting to know. And something we could talk about at some point is, you know, what sort of design does D&D have and in what way does it promote, you know, obnoxious people playing? Oh, <laughs> I, I think the better question is, is, like, how does it not discourage obnoxious people from playing? Right, right. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's just it's an interesting it's an interesting topic. It's very vague, as we talked about. Um, so. I was surprised to have seen it coming from Mike. Yeah. I would actually say that the Adventurers League and how they've changed their thing actually promotes a different kind of now play style. Um, mm, for sure. Because now, now killing monsters is not the primary way to get experience points. Right. Yep. So that, that means something. It means a lot, actually. It definitely means a lot, both as a designer and as a player and as a DM. It, it means a ton of change. It means a ton of things. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, that's a whole other topic, though. I, man, we just we could have done a whole show just on on this idea right here. I know that, that's really, why I brought it up. <laughs> you really broached an interesting subject when you um when you talked about swearing at the table, like because that has nothing to do with design, unless of course you have a rule in your game that's about like if you swear you get docked you experience know, no, points or yeah, you're absolutely right there. Yeah, we yeah. we had we had gone off into kind of ambassador uh, topics, so that's why it, yeah. it switched over. And, but absolutely, yeah, and that that also has nothing to do with design, right? Like, and being an ambassador for the game. Well, you know, there's some meta stuff in the Adventurers League, right, with those DM rewards, right? Like that was uh, that was a meta design that was about being an ambassador. So, yep, I don't know. You know, there, there's there's ways to do it. There's there's things that you can do to um, encourage um, ambassadorship and like quality um, behavior out in public. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, but then, man, that's a, such a good topic, Sean. I mean, I, I just kind of want to scrap our show and talk about that for a while. Uh, uh, we, we, we should we should do at least a little bit of the Moonshine. Yeah, let's do that. So let's do okay. um, the Moonshine. This is our uh, one part one, maybe. Um, we'll do more parts of this. We won't. I don't know if we. We're really just going to talk about the background history and and the main islands today because there's so much going on. At some point, we'll talk about the organizations of the Moonshine as associated with the. Uh, the Adventures League stuff from Baldwin Games. Mm-hmm. But tell me about the background and the history of the Moonshine Isles. I'd love to, Chris. So in the mid-80s, TSR was getting ready to put out a setting called the Forgotten Realms, which some of you may have heard of. What, what is that? I have yes, no idea. I've, I've never heard of it. So you know, Ed Greenwood was getting together all of his notes from his world, um, the Forgotten Realms. But they also had this other project going on called the Munche Isles. Uh, it was created by Douglas Niles, and he had also written a novel called Dark, Dark Walker on Moonshay uh, that captured well, I believe, the 
sort of D&D feel in fiction form. So they decided to make the Moonshay Isles part of the Forgotten Realms and release that novel as the first work of fiction from this new setting. And so the actual first Forgotten Realms product that was released was this novel, Dark, Dark Walker on Moonshay, a few months before the actual Forgotten Realms campaign box was released. Which is hilarious because the, moon, uh, because the Forgotten Realms, if you look at the map, the original map, mm-hmm. it's really just Ontario. Yeah. So like it's like Canada, right? Yeah. Like yeah. broken up into a bunch of different stuff. Yeah. But this is like Mythic Ireland is the Moonshay Isles, right? Like, and it's not associated in any way, shape, or form. Yep. So not only was uh, this first novel published, but they also published a full trilogy, um, starting with Dark, Dark Walker on Moonshay and going through to Black Wizards and Darkwell. They also released a second trilogy of books uh, a few years later, uh, Prophet, of the, Prophet of Moonshay, The Coral Kingdom, and The Druid Queen. Uh, also, one of the first supplements for the Forgotten Realms that was released was FR2 Moonshay, which gave game mechanics and background to uh, this world or this part of the world that Doug, Doug Niles had created. So that was how the Moonshay Isles uh, was launched for D&D. So I made a huge gaffe mm-hmm. on this directed mark the other day. Uh-oh. Apparently, like I said something about um, who's the writer? Troy Denning, right? He mm-hmm. wrote all the Dark Sun stuff. Yes. For for some reason in my head, I got Douglas Nile and Troy Denning to be the same person, and I attributed the Moonshee Isles stuff to, to Troy Denning. So Don't. if you're listening to Misdirected Mark, whoops, my bad. Because <laughs> Troy Denning wrote all the Dark Sun stuff. None of the Moonshee Isles stuff. Whoops. Nope. <laughs> in fact, when we created this... Um... Moonshee Isles mm. regional guide from Bald Band Games uh, to support the convention created content for the Adventures League that Bald Band Games creates. We got Doug Niles to write the foreword for the for the product, so it was very nice. He was very obliging and uh, gave a, a nice little summary of you know his work and where it came from and you know where he wanted to see it go. So um, if you do pick up the Moonshee Isles regional guide on the DM skill, make sure you check that forward out because it gives a, a nice little historical summary of, uh, of Doug Niles's work, which is really cool. Yep. Uh, it's a very, it's a very, really the whole, um, regional guide for the Moonshee Isles is a really nice gazetteer. It really is. And in in that style in a lot of ways too. Yeah. I, and I have to thank, even though I did work on it, I have to thank Robert Alanese and Eric Mengi because I would have just put up a, you know, 30 pages, the map, and then maybe some backgrounds and stuff. And when Robert and Eric came in to work on it, they they saw what was lacking in it, and they really did a great job of um, adding content that would tie everything together and make it more relevant to players that were playing uh, in the Adventures League or, or any DM that was going to pick it up to use it as a setting for their own campaigns. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in the back of that book, too, mm-hmm. like um, name lists and things like that. It's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. All right. Um, so that's the hi- the history and the, a brief background in history of the Moonshiles. It's That's very, 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 very brief. Mm-hmm. We could talk a lot more about that. Maybe we will at some point in the future. But um, now we're just going to talk about the seven main islands. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's start with the largest one. That is Alaron. So um, 
On the island of Alaron, there's the High King Diedrich Kendrick, and that's where House Kendrick has their seat of power. Uh, Care Caladir is mm-hmm. what it is called these that's, days, if I remember. Yep, that's correct. Yep. Um, there's a whole bunch of other stuff on Alaron because it's just such a big island, right? So, like, there's there's the Durinal Forest, which has been taken over by um, by mostly goblins and other evil fae. Uh, the 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 great goblin king Gark mm-hmm. is in charge of that now. Yep. Uh, what else is going on on Alaron? Do you, do you have any idea? Well, the most important thing to know about Alaron is that it wasn't originally the the seat of of power for for the House Kendrick for the kings and queens of of the Moonshays, but they were driven from Gwyneth, which was the island that housed their castle, uh, by a Fey invasion. So they were forced to leave and resettle on Alaron. So this is kind of their adopted home. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is it is a large landmass. There are there is the forest, the Durnal Forest, as you as you mentioned, and there's also um, the Fairheight Mountains, which are in the north, where many of the dwarves live. Yeah, and, Clan Rustfire and Clan Rookoth. Yep. So the uh, one of the trilogies from the Bald Man Games Adventures deals with how those um, two dwarven clans came to be merged and what they're fighting right now in terms of threats to their land uh, in, in the Fairheight Peaks. So, uh, the, you know, the most important thing about Alaron is that is where most of the folk live. That's the one of the two races of humans that um, are native to the, to, to the Moonshe Isles. Uh, the folk are more like the the Ang- Anglo-Saxons of the world. You know, they're um, farmers mostly. They worship this force called the Earth Mother, so w- which is kind of like a force of nature. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's discussion about whether she is a primordial or a goddess or both or neither, um, or a fae queen or a fae queen. Right? There's there's a there's a, a long history of debate whether in game or out of game about who or what she is. But, you know, so that is where they live, um, working the land, foresting, fishing, you know, doing doing the the work of the common folk. Um, no, no pun intended. So that's that's what Alaron is really all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a couple other uh, factions that exist in. You already mentioned the dwarves in the Fairheight Mountains, but there's mm-hmm. also Garnhelm, which is where a bunch of the Northlanders. That's the other human race yep. that lives in the Mucha Isles. Yep, in the extreme north of Alaron, there there is a contingent of um, of Northlanders, as you just mentioned, and we'll talk about them in more detail later. But yeah. there, there's been tension between the folk and the Northlanders for years. Uh, sometimes they've been almost at open war. Uh, more often, the, or at at some points, they've been at peace, and more often, it's just they recognize each other and they they get along. Yeah, en- enough. They get along enough, right? Absolutely. All right, let's talk about um, Flamsturd now. So Flamsturd is actually a very small island. It's uh, called the Wizard's Island because of, for the name for the wizard Flamsturd. Mm-hmm. So a while ago, there was like some sort of ca- uh, catastrophe that occurred, and this wizard, a bunch, a bunch of like creatures, like monsters, got out of the tower and started wandering around the island. I love that. It's like the island of Dr. Moreau in a lot of ways. I'm pretty sure this wizard was just doing experiments and things like that inside of his tower, right? Yeah, it's this is one of those uh, places that 
hasn't had a lot of history written about it. Uh, so it's, it's changed over the years about what that Island is, but where it stands right now, that's exactly right. Um, there is some civilized areas, uh, care, D- D- I can't say this <laughs> care. Dewill is there. Yep. And, uh, so, you know, it's, it's populated by, um, members of the Moonshine Isles, but the rest of the Island is scary. Yeah. Because all of these creatures that escape from the wizard's tower, um, are still, still there. And no one is a hundred percent sure what happened to Flamsterd. He may still be in this tower as far as they know, even though it's underwater because, um, part of it fell into the sea and, uh, it flooded. So yeah. it's a, uh, it's a scary place. And I'm sure that we will be visiting that or seeing adventures written there, um, in the convention created content from bald man games. I mean, if you read the gazetteer, you actually can see what happened to the tower, right? It's, it's there. Yep. It exists underwater mm-hmm. in an air bubble. Yep. Not even a lich, right? He's just there hanging out. Why not? Supposedly. That's that, that's that's the rumor. That's what crazy wizards do, right? Yeah, absolutely. Not mad wizards, though. Just no, crazy wizards. Just crazy, exactly. All right, let's talk about Gwyneth. So, Gwyneth... All right. At some point, the uh, Lady Seraphel, right? Or, or Lady Ordolf. She yeah. decided to come back to the prime... Uh, to the... To the the Forgotten Realms, mm-hmm. rose a castle up out of the middle of a lake, and her forces basically cleared out the entire land around her because she had to come back here because she's destined to die on on the Prime Material Plane, and if she does, it'll be good for her people and the common folk, or the mortal folk, I should say. Yep. Yep. You, you sum it up pretty well. She, being an elf, um, being a fae creature, she's nigh immortal. So there was a prophecy that said she would die here. So she took her castle and went to the Feywild um, and just left because she didn't want to die. But as years and centuries and and millennia passed, um, the prophecy kind of came around to say, yes, you will die, but you really, your death will save your people and many other people. So that's why she came back. She brought her castle and this fey realm back to Gwyneth. Well, when she got there, she found that there was already all of these humans there. Um, and they didn't get along. Let's put it that way. So there was a war and the fey won. The fey drove, the, the drove the, um, the humans, all led by you know, the, the High King Kendrick, um, away. And that's why they're on Alaron now. So it's it's kind of an interesting story because normally you have this good versus evil in in your D and D settings, right? The Fey being evil, right? But they're not. So this was just a a power, you know, a political struggle of mm-hmm. who would rule the land, even though both sides are technically good. And so, at some level. The, both leaders understand this. Both leaders understand that neither neither the, the Fae or the humans are evil creatures. And at some point, they're going to need to work together to fight whatever um, terrible fate 
is coming to the Moon Moonshay Isles, but there's the political tension will not allow them to fully work together. Which is really cool. Yeah. Like uh, it creates that it creates what you want is drama, right? Like there's yep. not everybody people sort of get along but they don't get along, right? Yeah. So that's why you'll see um humans that still do live in Gwyneth, they were allowed to return or allowed to stay in certain areas and farm and, and do, you know, make the living that they've always made. Uh, and you will see fake creatures from Gwyneth traveling to the other islands and having adventures and trading and, and doing things like that. So it's not open warfare. It's just this overall tension because um, the Kendrick, the House Kendrick and, and the king want to move back and reoccupy their you know, family their ancestral castle that's been being overgrown for the last few hundred years. Yeah, there's a lot of like wild beasts and things like that that occupy that space now too. Yep. And as, as badly as they want like a a diplomatic um, group there, like it's it's still super tense. Yep. And there is a a contingent of evil shadow fae that oh, also love that also came back and are at war now with. Um, with the Fae Queen and her people uh, over the you know, over the land and over whatever, it may be directly tied to what evil is in store for the Moonshays. Mm-hmm. That's um, that's Urfania and the 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 Unseelie Court. I would I mean that's pretty much what they are, right? They're yeah. the Unseelie Court. Exactly. They have a castle called Citadel Umbra, and Urfania is a mist hag, and she was ex- she was like excised from the Fae Court by Lady Orlif. So Urfania pretty much hates Orlif. Mm-hmm. And they um they exist somewhere in in Winter Glen. That's the forest way to the north. Yep, the the and, forest land way to the north of, of Gwyneth. Yeah. Yeah, it's another one of these forests that you could use for all kinds of grim fairy tale type stuff or like, you know, French storytelling of those like large French forests that had terrible things happening in them. Mm-hmm. Uh and the last thing I wanted to mention about Gwyneth is uh Chrysalis. So there's a whole other race of elves called the Lure Elves. They're very um, isolationist. So mm-hmm. they haven't been a part of the world for a very long time. And they are now just starting to come out and explore the world again. So you have these out-of-time, out-of-place, out-of-culture elves that every once in a while wander into places. And they ask a lot of questions about culture. And they have very odd ways about them because their culture has stagnated for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's a really cool thing to do. And, so, and in some ways they have more in common with the humans than they do of the returned elves because they worship the earth mother, just like the folk do. Um, so even though they are strange, they, they sort of speak that common religious uh, tongue that the, the folk do. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's, that's Gwyneth. Let's move on to Murray. So Murray. Uh, it's called the Perilous Moorland. So this is very Scotland-esque, right? Mm-hmm. And also France, I would say, mm-hmm. because of the Black Blood tribe. Mm-hmm. So the Black Blood tribe and the forces of House Kendrick often war here. And the Black Blood tribe, their um, their whole goal is to capture a whole bunch of people and murder them in Moonwells, which... Sean, would you let people know what Moonwells are? So the Moonwells are portals through which the Earth Mother... <laughs> Um, wields her power and keeps an eye on things. So they are exactly that. They are wells, um, big pools of water that 
uh, appear sporadically throughout all of the moonshades. And as much as um, the druids that worship the Earth Mother use them to heal and to practice rites and so on, they're also easily corrupted by um, folks with ill intent. And the um, the lycanthropes of the Black Blood Tribe are just such people. Um, uh-huh. In the past, the, they have used the Moonwells to um, to bring in evil creatures from nether worlds to fight on their behalf. I think that's yeah, the best way to put it. It is. There's a place called the um, the Broken Stone Vale in the Feywild. Mm-hmm. That's where some of the leaders of this Black Blood tribe come from, or some of the members from this Black Blood tribe come from. And their whole goal is to corrupt these portals to summon uh, Kazaroth, their their god, mm-hmm. basically. They're whatever they call it. We don't know. It's one of the cool things about the Moonshay Isles, these entities that are like these powerful entities that you would just call gods in other places. We're not sure if they're gods or primordials or some other kind of power, right? Yep. Like they're, they're, It's fascinating because you don't really know what they are. Yep. In, in the novels, um, in the very first novel, this Kazgarath was a, um, what do you call it when a god has a form on Earth? Um, avatar? Like an avatar of the god of murder and the god of death. And it's, it goes back and forth of what he actually is. It's, it's always a vessel of some greater god, but you know he still had tremendous power. And he was on a mission to, you know, destroy the the High King and his family so they could take over this island. And so Mm -hmm. there's always that fear in the backgrounds, because even though hundreds of years have passed since that happened, the folks still remember in their folklore and, and in their stories and in the oral traditions that have passed down that there is this creature out there that is just one heartbeat away from coming back and destroying everything. It's like their boogeyman. Yep. But he's uh, real. Yeah, but he's real because he was already here once. Yep. And it wasn't that long ago. It's true. Uh, the other thing is there's um there's some mountains on this island that have a lot of trolls and ogres and orcs that sometimes work with the Black Blood Tribe. Yep. And there um on all of these islands that we talk about, there's incredible amounts of natural resources. So not only politically do the powers of good want these islands re- retained or, or brought back into the fold, but they need them to get the natural resources out. So on all of these islands, even though it's overrun, there are still pockets of civilization that um, that the High King sends his troops to to hold in case they can ever get a big enough army together to go in and completely wipe out the, the threats there. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, though, they have too many things to deal with, right? That is exactly the problem. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about Norland now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Norland has a bunch of giants and a bunch of Vikings. So the Vikings are the Northlanders, right? Yep. In in old lore, they were called the Northmen, but in our more uh, you know aware times, they're now the Northlanders, which is good. Yep. And so they are akin to the real world Vikings. Um, they would go raid farms to get what they needed they would pirate the seas to take what what they thought belonged to them they worshipped you know the god or goddesses of the sea and of storms and of strength and 
over the years they've split a bit. So there are some now that are more fishermen and stay at home folks as opposed to the Raiders, but there are still contingents and pockets of Northlanders out there who um, are all about the raiding. And on Norland, uh, you know, think of, think of all the Norse myths. It's all happening there. You've got the giants in the mountains who are trying to come down and, and destroy the humans there. Uh, the humans are fighting back and trying to take the mountains back for the resources that the mountains have. So there's that tension there. Yeah. And um, just to throw some, some names for you folks out there to give some context. Um, so that, that fight's going on. But like there was one at one point in time, a woman named the Storm Maiden who was trying to take over Norland. And there was a giant war between two factions of the Northlanders. Mm-hmm. Yep, she was r- rumored to be unkillable, or not unkillable, undrownable. Mm-hmm. And so she, by f- sheer force of will and force of arms, started taking over the smaller clans and smaller tribes of the Northlanders until she had a full army behind her. And she wanted to return to the old ways and just start raiding and slaughtering anyone that that stood in her way while the more peaceful faction of the Northlanders stood up to her and the war was not going well for the more peaceful uh, folks and then suddenly the storm maiden was gone she disappeared no one knows what happened to her where she went but after she was um, after she vanished her army started to fall apart and a more peaceful um, Northland reigned. Yeah, but there was a huge problem with that during that battle. Um, Ralt the Wise is the leader, the current king of the Norals. Yep. Uh, lots of his children and grandchildren were killed, and the only one left is Astrid. Mm-hmm. And she's pretty uh, excellent, actually. She 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 could be a, a very good leader, but the Norlanders are not necessarily keen on having a a woman in charge because of everything that happened with the storm maiden. Right. They, uh, they're always sort of a patriarchal society to begin with. And so when the one very powerful, uh, woman that they you know, saw in their time, the storm maiden took charge. Um, it started going very wrong, very quickly. Yeah. Um, wrong in terms of this civil war between the two. So, um, it'll be interesting to see, if we hear any more from the Storm Maiden, or if Astrid takes over uh, her grandfather's reign, I, I think I think down with the patriarchy, let Astrid rule, and then when the Storm Maiden comes back, Astrid can just you know be out out with the Storm Maiden and beat her down. It'll be an interesting uh, story to see what happens. Yeah, except for the fact that there's the the Jotunheim range that's not too far away from there, and then there's Lagarl, um, a old crone Firbolg who is leading these creatures and is working at. Um, getting a bunch of Drugar to work with her to, you know, wreck Rogansheim, Rogarsheim, which is where the the seat of power of the the Northlanders is. Yep. So that that doom could roll down from the mountains at any time. Any time. So, like, there's just threats everywhere, right? Like, that's that's the great thing about the Moonchilds. There's just tension everywhere. Everything's about to explode. Yep. And, And each island has its own story that's different from the others. Mm-hmm. Um, Oman. So Oman is uh, lost to the giants. Like, there are no humans, as far as I can tell, on Oman. Yeah, 
and if there is, it's a very rudimentary hold for now because the island is overrun with um, Formorian giants from the Shadowfell. Or, I'm sorry, from the uh, Feywild. And they are led by Queen Kaname, who is the uh, Formorian giant leader, who holds Oman. Right now, they there's a huge Formorian army. The only problem is they don't have any ships to go anywhere. So they're either trying to build ships or looking for portals to get from one island to the next so they can spread their reign of terror. Um, and the Northlanders um, hold Oman in great, the island of Oman in great honor because one of their greatest leaders, Thelgar Ironhand, um, ruled from here. So the Northlanders want to take this island back. They have the ships, but they don't have the the troops enough to do it. And the troops they do have are, are have been split in this sort of civil war. Uh, now that they're under one ruler, there is talk that maybe they will be able to put a dent into the uh, power held by the Formorians in Oman, but we can't be sure. Hopefully. We'll find out, right? Yes, we will. That's what all the convention created content will do. I mean, some of the stuff that we're talking about has already like come to pass in some of those adventures. Mm-hmm. And some may come to pass, may not. Mm-hmm. All right, that's really all Mount. There's not really much else going on there. Like, there's the the Stelgar Iron Hand and his Karen, which was remains undisturbed because it's protected by spirits and traps. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, there's a lot of cool magic gear in there too, like a giant greatsword called Iron Hand's Reckoning and Chainmail that will chug off any blow. This is good stuff. Yep. So if they if there is a strike against that Iron Keep and they're able to get in and get Felga Iron Hands magic items, it might assist them in their war against the Formorians. Mm-hmm. All right. Last island that we're going to talk about is Snowdown, which is um, the Omnian Incursion. So this is Om um, has taken up and, and t- taken over Snowdown for the most part, and they're going to take over the Moonshade Isles by trading everybody out of everything. Mm-hmm. So, as I mentioned earlier, one of the great uh, benefits that the, the Moonshade Isles has is their natural resources. Well, as soon as you have natural resources, you have merchants who want to come in and take advantage of those. And that's exactly what the nation of Am did. They sent forces. Well, first they sent merchants to the closest island to the uh, mainland, which is Snowden, and started pulling out all the timber and all the coal and all the natural resources that they had there. And um, when the merchants began to take advantage of the locals who are kind and, and, you know, welcoming, uh, the king was going to do something about it. The nation of Am then sent troops and put a pretty good stranglehold on the island until it fell. Um, the regent who rules Snowden in Am's name is Lady Eliza, who happens to be a vampire. Mm-hmm. Just happens to be a just vampire. happens to be a vampire. So not only does she rule with an iron fist, she also has the undead uh, on her side. And by now, the it's it it was the first goal of the king of High King Ke- uh, Kendrick to take Snowden back. However, his son was kidnapped by Lady Eliza, 
and is being used as a bargaining chip to keep that from happening. Um, she's told him, if you come in with any troops, your son dies. So right now, nothing can happen there until the son is able to be recovered. And that's really all that's going on over there for the most part, except for the fact that there's a story about a uh, a man who found a horn in a book because there's not supposed to be any moon balls or anything like that really or druidic power on, on um, Snowdown anymore. But uh, somebody came across something that is very interesting, which I will just leave at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and throughout the the uh, regional guide, there's all these small little story snippets that can lead into larger adventures if you, as the DM, so choose to create it. Um, there's lots of hooks there for you. It's really good. Really good stuff. All right. Well, uh, that's our show then, huh? Yep. I think we we could talk more about groups. We could talk more about... You know, plots that are happening, but we've gone for pretty much an hour, which is longer than normal. So, yeah, I mean, we will talk about that stuff in the future. I think we'll talk about some plots. We'll talk about some of the groups, especially the groups, because those are interesting and new. Mm -hmm. But uh, with that, I will say thank you, everyone, for for listening. And I'll do a few Patreon shout outs. Uh, Dan Simons, David Walker, Donahue McCarthy, Drew Smith, Evil Rich, Glenn Seiler, James Intercasso, Jason Pitt, Jean Lorbert, Jeff Stevens, Jim Morrison, John Just John, M.T. Black, Matthew Petra. Petrazuli, Nate Brooms, Remy Bilodeau, Rob Bush, Robert Aducci, Robert Day, Ryan Bolter, Sean Kelly, Space Rhino, Stacey Winters, Steve Bissonette, The Closet Gamer, Todd Crapper, Troy Pitchelman, uh, Yep, thank you. I'm going to say it wrong because they, they sent me a message about how to pronounce their first name, too. Damn, I just forgot how to do it. And then Wayne Peterson. Uh, speaking of patrons, if you'd like to be a patron of Down with D&D, you can click on the link to our Patreon page on the website, and for $2 a month, you can get yourself a shout-out. Or for $4 a month, you not only get that shout-out, but you also get to see our pre-production show notes and access to our Slack Room for Life. If you can't help us out monetarily, but you want to give us a boost, you can do so with an Apple Podcast review. They help even if you're not listening via Apple Podcasts, because other podcatchers often use Apple Podcasts as their way to rate and rank shows. And that would make us more visible if you could go give us a nice review. Mm-hmm. So, Sean, where can we find you on the Internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin or on the Down with, D- Down with D&D G Plus community. And very, very soon you'll be able to talk with me as the mad wizard when we get the Twitter up and running. Absolutely. Uh, you can hit me up at Misdirected Mark, that's the network Twitter, or on the website where you can catch other great shows such as this one, the Wednesday Evening Podcast All-Stars. Brett, Tom, Kevin, Chris, and Andy get together to play games that get edited down into an audio drama for your ears. Join this crew of All-Star players as they create stories from the games you love. Down with the Indie is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Sean, Mr. Mad Wizard Merwin himself, what are we going to do now? We're going to go kill some Mad Wizard Menagerie Monsters. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? This whole party. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D?